Super Talk Mississippi media production. If you're feeling anxious about your investments with all the economic volatility and chaos in Washington, tune in to Super Talk Jackson on Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. and Sundays from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. for Element Wealth Radio with Jeremy Nelson. Learn more at myelementwealth.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element wealth studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve (laughs) yes indeed we have made it what did you call yesterday mondification of wednesday the mondiest wednesday we've had in a minute (laughs) okay Oh, my gosh. It certainly uh, feels like it, for sure. Uh, No doubt about that. So I wanted to start this morning with just a clarification on something that uh, we were discussing yesterday. Just just want to make sure that we were clear. And it was toward the end of the program. And it uh, just concerns the composition of revenue in the state of Mississippi to the state government, and and spending, and I just wanted to make sure that uh, we were accurate with those figures. So I started out by saying that the income tax produced 50% of state revenue, and that's on me. I, I knew it, and I did correct it right after that, as you recall yesterday. It's roughly 33%. Uh, and the 50% figure I had in mind <laughs> actually is associated with Spending, spending, the biggest category there, education, which is uh, just north of 50% of total spending, as it turns out, uh, usually comes in at 52 to 53% of our spending. Uh, tax revenue, income tax revenue, individual income tax revenue is about 33%. Sales tax usually comes in a, just a bit higher than that, 35, 37, 38 percent roughly. And then we have corporate income taxes is the next big category, sits around 12 percent. You got the insurance, premium tax, ABC tax, use taxes, some other gaming taxes, uh, some other uh, taxes and fees, which are a small percent, three percent. I just want to clarify that that the income tax, and the reason that's important is because elimination of the income tax has been a high-profile issue deliberated in our legislature, in our state government, and it will continue to be a high-profile issue, I believe, as. Uh, we approach 
elections here, primaries, right around the corner. Where are we? Just a day over a month away, right? Day, a couple of days, over a month away. And between now and then, of course, the Neshoba County Fair, somewhere we'll be hanging out for a couple of days and we'll visit with all the candidates as they deliver remarks there from the pavilion at Founders Square, right in the center of uh, the venue. Looking forward to that. Uh, just so much stuff going on. It's, uh, it's a fun time of year that's normally a quiet time of year, Rhino, but because we got elections around the corner, and of course the Supreme Court decisions just released at the end of their term last week, a barrage of decisions, and then a federal court decision on Independence Day concerning censorship on social media. The government... Uh, Which has now been appealed. And you knew it was going to be. I'm not sure we're going to get... So it's headed to the Supreme Court, uh, more than likely. But we've got Christopher Green, our good friend, law professor, University of Mississippi Law School, and we'll get his take on the student loan decision that came Friday. So we had the professor on Thursday, recall, and that was uh, within an hour or so after the handing down of the decision on affirmative action in admissions, college admissions, that, of course, was uh, struck down by the high court. And then the very next day, we got two big-time decisions, one on Joe Biden's authority with the swipe of a pen to forgive about $500 billion of student loans, and then the other couple of cases dealt with religious freedom. One for a postal worker who said that being required to work on Sunday by his employer, the United States Postal Service, violated his religious rights. So that's a day he takes off and, and uh, typically spends much of that day with his church community. And he won his case, as a matter of fact. And gosh, that got I, I read the opinion there, and there's this uh, I may get it wrong here, major issue doctrine or something to that effect. Major something doctrine. I can't remember the the middle word there. But you looking for that? So uh, Major questions, Doctor? Major question. That's it. Major questions. I said major issues, major questions. And so that was the centerpiece. We'll talk to the uh, Christopher Green, the law professor, about that. That seemed to be a centerpiece influencing the court's decision there. And it basically what it says is, I think I'm getting this right. You're looking at that. I read this over the weekend. But if you've got a situation where uh, requiring a person to work on, say, Sunday in this case, or requiring an employee of something that doesn't have a, a major impact on the business one way or another, well, then you've got to yield in the, in the situation where religious freedom may come out on top. But if it's a sort of minimal effect, 
That's a little different story. So we'll get the, the professor's take on that. And then Mark Henderson, founder of Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company, is now the chief technology officer at Ocean Arrow. He writes columns for Super Top Mississippi News, focusing on entrepreneurship. He'll be on with us at 12.05. Hmm. So, again, back to the statewide issues and the statewide environment political environment with the elections around the corner, the uh, lieutenant governor uh, race, the lieutenant governor's race, clearly is the one in focus from a primary perspective, that of course being contended between incumbent Delbert Hoseman and challenger Chris McDaniel, the senator. And so what's now getting rather interesting a rhino or the ads being run by the respective these these are video ads respective candidates and they of course primarily focus on the other candidate remember we had a discussion yesterday about some people suggesting on our text line maybe we ought to have sort of an approval and evaluation process for candidates before they're placed on the ballot and that that should really dig into their bona fides and and their qualifications before go through a qualification process before they are allowed on the ballot and of course that would require massive change in law and we opine that that's for the voters to determine and i made the statement yesterday and this is what where i'm going with this that you probably learn more about the candidates from their opponents. The opponents are quick to tell you all the bad things about uh, a candidate, right? Those in the race. And that's what we're seeing play out here in the lieutenant governor's race. Certainly there looks like they're political action committees, but you can't necessarily tell who's behind the production of these, uh, these ads. But that's that's what I mean. They say it at the end, but usually, yeah, I know. But I mean, paid for, right? But and they, so you got the candidate, and the candidate runs ads and campaigns, and then you got separate political action committees, which are supposed to be totally separate, not have any communication, not receive any instruction from the candidate and the campaign themselves. But it's, it's just fascinating to watch it. So those are just independently formed groups that are um, registered entities, have certain status with the IRS and so forth, and I think it's 501c4, if I'm not mistaken. And they're stood up as these political action committees, PACs as they're known. Then there's PACs and there's super PACs. It gets really complicated. But they pretty much can do whatever they want. Usually that's where the mudslinging comes from, from an advertisement perspective and, and uh, materials and promotion perspective. It's usually the PACs that really put it on the other candidates. Would you agree with that? Oh, it's yeah. It's typically the PACs, not the candidate themselves. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio. Got a big day planned. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. We are back in the Element Well studio. We thank you so much for joining us. So the major questions doctrine, that did apply to the student loan. And basically what it says, uh, I think I interpret this correctly, and we'll ask the professor to give, of course, his, his professional legal insight on that. But it, it has to do with, with uh, the power an agency can have relative to uh, whether or not Congress authorized them in such a way. This is a front and center issue. We saw this big case with the West Virginia versus the EPA. You know, we've said on the program before that the dead gum agency complex effectively runs the government, more so than the people we elect and put in office in the Congress and in the White House, et cetera, that all this stuff comes from these agencies that affects us on a day-to-day basis more than the laws that Congress passes. And then what happens is these laws get handed off to the agencies that, that are affected, that are responsible for implementing them, and then they just sort of hijack them and do whatever the heck they want. And the situation with forgiving student loans, that's the issue. It's being done without authorization by Congress. It's essentially being done... Uh, at the agency level, based on order from the president, from the executive office. And the major questions doctrine really uh, deals with it, it, Amy Comey, uh, Cody Barrett, pardon me, her concurring opinion really involved more discussion of the major questions doctrine than, than the others, and and it has to do with does is Congress required to speak very succinctly, very clearly about authorizing agencies to, to exercise certain powers? And if they have major political or economic significance, well, then you need authority from the Congress, is what the doctrine says. You can't just do that on your own. Well, obviously... Swiping a pen to forgive $500 billion of student loans is of major significance. And so the court said, yeah, this is something you really need the Congress to weigh in on and to authorize. You shouldn't just be able to do that external of the Congress. That's the major questions uh, doctrine, MQD, the acronym used to uh, define it. So this was really more about a transfer of wealth than anything else, honestly, for giving student loans. And he was buying votes is what it was. No doubt. Make a big promise you know you can't keep. You even admitted you probably couldn't keep it at the very time you made it. But you're relying on the uninformed and the people that aren't plugged into politics on a daily basis to vote with emotion and feelings, and they did. It's sad. And it it goes back to our discussion yesterday about voters understanding the candidates and 
being informed when they vote. And so this forgiveness, by the way, was the actions by the president was relying on a law passed in the nine in the wake of 9/11 and that was designed to help members of the military by allowing the executive branch to wait quote wave or modify terms of student loans quote, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. And so what they tried to do was rely on that rather old legislation to swipe the pen here and just put a match to that $500 billion owed in the form of student loans. 43 million Americans would see their terms, quote, modified. That's what they're saying. So now they're going to try to rely on a different law, a much older law, to affect this elimination. But Which is, once again, just papering over the black mold that is college and academia. Totally true. The price to go to a four-year university has skyrocketed ever since the federal government got involved in just handing out money to anybody that wants to go. But nobody seems to want to rein in the colleges. Nobody seems to want to make them pay for the fact that they're just pumping out a bunch of worthless degrees and foisting six-figure debt on people with an underwater basket weaving or a Russian literature degree. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, and we need to bring the schools in to be more accountable. They're the ones that's benefiting from this, and they're pumping out these grads with these worthless degrees that, in some cases, aren't able to pay these loans and and just live. I mean, they can't afford the, the necessities, the basics of life, and pay the student loans, because they can't get a job that pays enough to do that, even though they invested a fortune, sold a bill of goods. So the president now, looking at Plan B, intends to rely on the Higher Education Act of 1965. And that, of of course, uh, provides government-backed loans and grants the Education Department, the ability to, quote, compromise, waive, or release loans. I think he's going to get, honestly, uh, the same response, the same challenge, same court decision on that. However, once again, the back door of the agencies. Now there's talk about modifying the terms such that Payments would not only be lower, they'd be income-driven, is what they call income-driven payments, which, which for many people would lower the amount they pay without increasing the interest accumulated. So they're going to modify the terms with respect to how interest is calculated and added to the loan balance, and the amount one has to pay will be income-driven so that they will pay less. And as a result of that, 
the present law, which says, hey, you pay for 20 years if you've got a bachelor's, 25 if you've got a graduate, whatever is outstanding at that point is forgiven. You're, you're familiar with that. I mean, oh, I know yeah. you've looked at that. So here, think about this. So what we're going to do is we're going to lower the payment, and we're going to change the, the interest terms, the interest rate terms. Which really, the interest rate's the only thing that they're changing. You can already get income-based repayment. You can, but apparently they're ratcheting that up some. I think from the repay terms to the save, the Biden save terms. It's an acronym that stands for something. But the idea in general is to is to reduce, if not eliminate, the compound interest feature and reduce the amount of the payment. The whole goal is to Make sure that you push as much of that balance out to that 20-year term so that it's forgiven, which, by some calculations, that being the, the new approach, would result in more forgiveness, more loan value being canceled than the $10,000 of forgiveness that Biden proposed and just got struck down by the Supreme Court. So they're going to Nobody get a, seems to want to deal with the fact that you can never pay on the principal right. ahead of time. You can only pay towards the interest. That's right. So you can't pay towards the principal if you want to pay a little extra. You can't get out from under it through bankruptcy. And once again, the colleges have no skin in the game. That's right. Seems like a whole lot of solutions in search of a problem instead of actually trying <laughs> to solve the problem. You, you can get out by dying. I did research that. And the New York Times actually suggested that. They actually had an article last uh, over the weekend, I think, maybe Saturday, where they went through like seven ways to still get your student loan forgiven. And one of them was to die. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, yeah, they're not giving up on this. That's the point. They're going to try to wrangle through and then again, my beef is with the fact that these agencies have this sort of broad power just to change the terms to essentially accomplish the same thing that the Supreme Court just struck down. That's where I have a problem. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Christopher Green, law professor of Ole Miss at 1105. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. into this segment here on Middays. We are in the Element Wealth Studio. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And boy, do you need them today because the Dow is in, engaged in a massive sell-off. The uh, it's off its lows. It was down over 500 points, now down 
483. The NASDAQ down as well. The 10-year Treasury up again over 4%. NASDAQ down, yeah, 1.33%. And that's because the jobs report came out, and guess what? It looks like that employers are still hiring people, and that is not welcome news to the market because that just gives more cover to the Fed to raise interest rates, and that's bad news for the market. And I'm going to say again that the insanity of this, honestly, Rhino, it's the asininity of it, is that you got Joe Biden over there bragging about creating jobs. By the way, he's in South Carolina today, a state that Trump won by, what, 18, 20 points, boasting about Bidenomics. So he's touting his job creation record. And you got the Fed over there who controls interest rates, which affects all of us. You may not think it does. You say, well, I don't borrow any money. It doesn't affect me. No, lots of people who sell stuff to you that you buy, they do, and it affects them. So it does affect us all. May not Pretty be much directly. Every farmer borrows money. That is correct. So it indirectly impacts pretty much anything connected to farming, which is just about everything you put in your mouth to eat. That's true, and many other consumables as, as well that use their products and the byproducts. You're absolutely right. And in fact, the banking industry in the state of Mississippi. Uh, many banks rely almost exclusively on farm loans for their revenue. That's how they make money. They sell money. That's how they make money. But, but there's a conflict. There's a, a, um, a confrontation between his fiscal policy, Joe Biden, they're responsible, the government, for fiscal policy, and he's out there touting job creation, and you got on the other side, you got Jay Powell who runs the Fed saying, "Oh man, they created too many jobs. That's not right. It's not what we're looking for. We keep raising these interest rates because we're looking for employers to shed their jobs, to eliminate jobs, to lay people off, to terminate people. That's what the Fed's looking for." And Joe Biden's over there bragging about creating them. It's like you got Biden and Powell next to each other digging a hole. And Biden just keeps shoveling the dirt out of his hole into Powell's hole. No doubt. Making Powell dig twice as hard. <laughs> but, but think about the conflict there but, uh, at that level of government. When you've got two people who are very powerful when it comes to our pocketbooks. You got Jay Powell that says, you know what, as long as Joe Biden and his wonderful economic policies keep creating jobs, we got to keep raising interest rates. And we're not going to stop until we see job destruction. That literally is what Jay Powell and the Fed governors are thinking about. And so when the market sees today's report showing that, you know what, Jay, you keep raising rates, but you're not really destroying jobs. That means you're going to keep raising rates, and that ain't good for the market. And you got Joe Biden over there that's going to brag about job creation. It's just, it is asinine when you think about it.
the, the conflict there. Now, do you think Joe understands the relationships there between the fiscal and the monetary policy? <laughs> no. Not even close. And though Jay Powell is a smart guy that does, my, my problem with him is he won't call it out. Anytime he gets asked by reporters, every time he goes and has his, uh, you know, his monthly chairman remarks, Fed chairman remarks, after they've had their FMOC meeting where they talk about what to do about interest rates, it's always incumbent upon the Fed chair to deliver remarks, statement on their action and just overall outlook. And, and the room, of course, is full of business reporters, people that do understand this stuff. They're journalists that have strong business backgrounds. And they always ask him, hey, do you think that you, you might see some improvement um, or, or some could you see some help from fiscal policy that might cut spending? You're looking to bring inflation down. We get that, Mr. Chairman. And you're doing so by raising interest rates with the goal being to destroy jobs so people have less money to spend, so inflation will come down. Well, in the meantime, you've got a, a spend-happy federal government that never met a nickel they couldn't spend. And in fact, most of the nickels they spend, they never met because they get printed out of thin air. And every time he gets asked that question, do you think that maybe some better fiscal policy to rein in spending would help the inflation scene, the inflation environment? He won't ever answer that question. He tiptoes around it. Well, you know, it's not our job to really weigh in on laws being made. Yeah, but it's your job. You have two major, major uh, pieces of your mission, two major elements of your mission. That's optimize employment and stabilize the currency. That's what the Fed does. And you've got really two tools to do that. The benchmark interest rate and the Fed window is what it's called when you buy and sell bonds, your balance sheet. And that effectively is printing money. It's what it is. That's your tools. So you're using those tools, but inflation really isn't moderating to your liking, your, your target being 2%. We're still sitting at around 5%. Ah, gee, I just wonder if that's because the federal government keeps printing money, spending money they don't have because of bad fiscal policy, and you won't say anything about it. It's... um. It literally is, is like you're at, at sea trying to tread the ocean and cross it in a skiff, and all the currents are coming against you. You're just treading water. You're just standing still. You can't make anything happen to your liking towards your goals because you, you've got an uncooperative federal government from a fiscal policy perspective. Where, where are the people in the Congress that should be pointing this out the way I am here? This is really pretty simple. This is not complicated economics. I mean, you, you know how it works. You well, it's because somewhere between 50 to 75 percent of Congress doesn't understand it either. That's sad. And that may be on the low end? I think it's on the low end. Well, that's sad. This is a pretty simple concept. I think even the average person knows, well, yeah, if you keep printing money, that's probably going to inflate. 
And on the other hand, you've got a, a Fed that keeps raising interest rates in an effort to moderate inflation, but they can't get any cooperation from a government that is just engaged in reckless spending. And that $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that passed in December with some support from Republican senators, I think 17 of them, that was just bad. Kevin McCarthy, he implored them, don't do that. Let's return to regular order. Let the spending bill originate in the House. we got a new House being seated in a short month. Let's follow regular order. But no, they wouldn't. And they ran through that thing. $1.7 trillion. Uh, and without any regard for the deficit it would create, and now we're on track to produce a $2 trillion deficit this year, the fiscal year ending in the federal government September 30th. So you're right about the income-driven repayment process. That has existed. That presently exists. What Biden is doing is they're modifying it uh, to make it even uh, more attractive, I guess, from a payment perspective. And what it would really do, uh, let's see, cut monthly payments to zero dollars for millions of low-income borrowers. This is straight from Miguel Cordona, the Secretary of Education. Uh, save all other borrowers at least $1,000 per year. So the bottom line is they're amending the income-driven repayment provision of the student loan uh, program so that you're going to pay, you're going to pay back or, or borrowers will pay back even less than they presently are pushing more of their principal out to the 20-year mark where all of it is forgiven. It's essentially going to cost us more. This is crazy. Uh, with the Supreme Court striking down Biden's plan. That's just upside down. Seems like there'd be some legal ramifications to protect against that. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk, Mississippi. The ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. I agree with most of your political views. Enjoy your show. I was just wondering, are you the hard-throwing right-hander from Jackson-St. Joe that had a bright future until the arm injury? I I am. That would be me. I don't, I don't know who that is, Rhino, that's... Um, not identifying themselves. Boy, that harkens back to a long time ago. That's what I thought I was going to do. Honestly, as a career, it was play baseball. It's all I ever wanted to do growing up and worked pretty hard at it. And it is true that I was, uh, was getting a lot of notice, including from MLB. And then uh, I hurt my arm not playing baseball. I hurt my arm tumbling in gym class. And that was dumb on my part. And I got challenged by how many I could jump over. You know what you do. You run and you jump over people that are kneeled down, land on a mat, 
role. Oh, yeah. And they challenged me, and they kept challenging me. And uh, I didn't make the last one. It was dumb on my part. It's what dumb high school kids do. And I landed on my shoulder. Now, I, I got bad bursitis from doing that. And today, you could get through that really quick. And I, I couldn't then. And so, ended the old career. Traded in the cleats for wingtips, as I like to tell people. <laughs> but appreciate the text, no doubt. My house payment went up $100 per month. I have an arm mortgage, Wilson in Greenwood. An adjustable rate mortgage is what that refers to. And those have a set period of time where the rate's locked in, and then they adjust after that period of time. And there's usually a, a cap on that, how much they can adjust in a year, and then how much they can adjust over the life of the loan. But yeah, that's certainly a result of uh, interest rates. You're right there, Wilson. And my guess is it will go up again on the anniversary of your loan. The next anniversary, you'll see another increase as a, as a result. I think if they think that Guam will tip over, then they sure as hell don't understand finances, says Gene and Mendenhall. That, of course, old Hammer and Hank Johnson from the great state of Georgia, he's the one that uh, now, of course, the video of him questioning an admiral there in the House is infamous. <laughs> when the admiral was discussing building some new military installations there on the island, and it was on one side of the island, and it is true that, quote, my fear is that the whole island will become so overly populated that it will tip over and capsize, end quote. And the admiral, God bless him, kept a straight face after that. Said, well, quote, we don't anticipate that, end quote. <laughs> we don't anticipate it. Oh, my gosh. How fast was your fastball, my friend? So, Tim and McGee asked, all right, so, Tim, you know, radar didn't exist back then the way it does today, but uh, folks that had a good eye for that sort of thing said that I was um, in the 91 or so range. But uh, And that was like at age 16. But I also had a... Uh, just a nasty 12-6 breaking pitch and a really weird uh, changeup that uh, was something that my high school coach taught that they don't really teach anymore, that sort of grip and that sort of technique. And then I also, believe it or not, Tim, I had a little sidearm action and I could, I could throw a, a sidearm fastball that I used to break away from or in on, away from the left-hander, in on the right-hander. And I used to try to paint the outside corner with the sidearm fastball uh, on the on the left-hander. It's kind of where I use that pitch primarily. But so I had, I had four pitches that I had command over, and that's why folks were looking at me. But, man, that was a long time ago. Uh, you know, it's just God's way. wasn't meant to be. But I got hurt, and I used to say I went from throwing it 90 to 9. <laughs> it's kind of the way that I couldn't even comb my hair after that. I couldn't lift my arm. You know, and again, the way medical science has improved, that kind of stuff you deal with, you'd rehab, you treat, 
you're back probably better. Remember, Tommy John surgery kind of changed the baseball world. Named after the pitcher, Tommy John, and that's it's got something to do with the tendons or something in your elbow, I think, where they move that around, do something, some sort of surgery. And heck, most of those guys that, that experience that injury and then have the surgery to treat it come back stronger and better. It's like part of the process when they rebuild it. But yeah, Tim and McGee says, yeah, you could have played Major League Baseball, and I love baseball. And I, well, I appreciate that, Tim. That's something that I think about sometimes. Again, that was a long time ago, and uh, you just have to accept uh, God's plan for you. And the plan was not for me to play baseball at a professional level, but I have enjoyed for many years coaching the uh, the kids in baseball. And I like to I like to say that. Spend more of my time coaching parents than two kids. Um, just trying to share some of the wisdom and experience. We're coming right back with Christopher Green, Super Talk News, Fox News next. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, Christopher Green, law professor at Ole Miss. Professor, good to see you again, sir. We are uh, back at it with more decisions being handed down from the Supreme Court uh, since we last spoke. That was last Thursday a week ago. They had just handed down their ruling on affirmative action in uh, college admissions, uh, opining that, in the majority at least, that uh, that's not legal. And so, uh, on the heels of that, then we had these other rulings concerning uh, Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, and then a couple of religious freedom cases. But it's been a busy term, to say the least. What do you think? Oh, yeah, no question. It's... uh... Always, I mean, the end of end of June is always uh, exciting. This is a little a uh, little more exciting, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, with both, I mean, with the the student loan thing and the affirmative action uh, decision, it's really hard to know exactly what the implications are because in both areas, uh, really, the next step would be uh, you know kind of a temporary version of, of something that we you know that uh, uh, we'd seen uh, in, a, in a bigger form before so this you know the Supreme Court says oh we can't have this kind of indefinite uh, affirmative action just you know for the for the end of time well you know they they could say uh, and you know I don't know I mean our law school you know different different places uh, different universities may say you know we're going to adopt you know just a, a policy for uh, for the next year similarly with the uh, with the student loan um, you know for completely forgiving all of the principal and the interest and everything um, you know, might that that might you know be beyond this you know emergency power in this in the statute from 2003. Uh, but the you know the, the president could say, well, you know, we're just you know not going to make them resume payments right away, and then just you know have these. Um, I think in game theory they call this salami tactics. So <laughs> just you know giving you know little bit uh, little bit at a time, and 
in lieu of you know in lieu of a real clear statute uh again you know, in terms of the, the the student loan thing in lieu of a statute saying no you know an emergency means uh uh, you know, something, you know, only for a limited time frame uh, or something like that. Um, you know, just the, the discretion that the administrative state has, uh, I, I think the things like that are going to be, uh, you, know, you, just, you know, when you write statutes like that, it invites uh, presidential behavior like that. Yeah. So, uh, of course, immediately the White House uh, resorted to, I guess, plan B, as I would call it, since the Supreme Court comes out and says, well, no, you just can't issue an order to the Department of Education to forgive loans of $10,000 based on your income, but uh, $10,000 up to $20,000 if you also received a Pell Grant. Just wiped off the principal. But in the meantime, uh, the White House comes out and says, well, we're going to try a new approach based on the Higher Education Act of 1965, which, again, I guess grants some powers to the Department of Ed to waive, modify, amend the terms of a loan. Isn't this sort of circumventing, if you will, subverting what the Supreme Court just ordered? Well, I mean, I always tell my students, I say, anytime you hear uh, somebody say, oh, you're, you're, you're doing an end run around uh, what they were doing, you're, uh, you're circumventing uh, what, we, what we just told you, um, uh, you always say an end run is illegal play. So one man's <laughs> circumvention is another man's compliance. Okay. Uh, so if you say, oh, well, you said we can't do that. We're going to try something else because you told us we couldn't do A. That's why we're, we're doing B. Um, and that, you know, Supreme Court can't, you know, it isn't going to come back and say, oh, come on, you know, you're supposed to respect the vibe of the thing. You know, it's supposed to, you know, just kind of see what we're up to, uh, because, you know, this is, this is, a uh, an activity with, you know, very particular language, particular text. And, you know, if there's, there's different text, um, you know, from, from, from 1965, um, you know, you know what the what the court could do to to really shut things down like this uh, would be to come up with a much more muscular uh, uh, view of things that just can't be given to the executive. Uh, so if you think about emergencies, um, Congress meets once a year. They're constitutionally obligated to meet at least once a year. Anything that's been around for a year uh, could have been done by Congress. Uh, so. Uh, you, you know, so the, the court in the in the in the student loan uh, opinion said, yeah, uh, you know, Congress leaders in Congress said we can't, you know, the, the administration can't do this. Uh, if you want to get uh, a student relief, you got to vote for our party to send send people to Congress. Uh, and this mm-hmm. was this was used as a as a campaign uh, uh, campaign uh, argument, and Congress didn't didn't get enough people to do it. Uh, and then uh, suddenly turning around saying the administration can do it, it's just you know. In certain respects, uh, there could be aspects of COVID that could still be, you know, still be an emergency now, like new details, sudden new details about details of COVID that suddenly mm. come out. But I mean, the general notion that you've got a pandemic, my goodness, we've had several sessions of Congress come and go. Yeah. Um, if they if they had wanted to, to say, you know, in light of, you know, all this stuff going on, we want to uh, uh, do do debt relief, we could, uh, could do that. So, you know, James Madison, he said, uh, 1800, he said, "Look, if something could have been a statute, uh, this is more or less his his view, and this was this is quite a muscular view." I said, "Look, if if Congress could have done this, 
uh, Congress has to do it if they want it want it to happen. They can't just punt things to the uh, hmm. to the feds, uh, hmm. to, to the to the administrators, the the, the president and his people. Uh, and if if certainly if we did that, then anything longer than a year couldn't be an emergency. But um, but the Supreme Court is is you know miles away from that that kind of uh, <laughs> kind of radical view. But you know until you really say something about what Congress has to do, exactly what Congress has to do and can't delegate to the to the executive uh you're gonna you're gonna cause uh administrators to hunt around looking for for other statutes that you know there's always a little bit of discretionary uh, room about the details uh but saying you know this thing ends up 70 years later turning into a uh you know massive massive authority to to do uh, all kinds of unexpected things you know you know that's that, that's what's going to happen unless you have a non-delegation doctrine. Well, we were just talking about that, the, uh, Professor, that uh, now the Biden administration is working. Uh, of course, the Biden administration includes the Department of Education. So the Department of Education is working to modify the payment terms, essentially, of the existing student loans, which accomplishes the same thing as just one fell swoop, wipe out $10,000 of principal uh, or $20,000, but maybe over an extended period period of time by changing the payment structure, the uh, income-based, income-driven repayment structure is what it's called. Uh, And so they're going to change that and then change the interest rate provision feature as well and the interest calculation provision so that essentially you just push more principal out for many of these borrowers to the end of the 20-year term, where under present law, all remaining principal on the debt is just wiped out, forgiven, written off. Yes. I, I Really, you don't know what the incentives are going to be. You know, somebody's got a bunch of student loans uh, that they thought, you know, they thought might get uh, uh, disappeared by this this uh, uh, the Bi- earlier Biden program, but now you're like, oh well, maybe it'll just get delayed. I mean, you do hope that some of these folks will think, you know, I really do need to go out and get uh, uh, a, a job that's 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 higher paying. You know, take you know take some of these these jobs, not just you know I you know I love grad school. I love people going to professional school. Uh, we get lots and lots more uh, law students when uh, when people are doing that. But you know we we really do want people to be going to the productive part of the the economy and building things that they can sell for for money and repay uh, repay <laughs> loans. And you know so the uncertainty you know may produce you know different incentives. And of course, if you get a different uh, a different president, things could could change in a in a few years when you know it's just not set in in stone with the statute so i mean i congress has got to do its job if you're gonna gonna stop this kind of thing but uh, it's you know when you have really really close uh uh majority tight really tight majorities in in congress it's really tough to even if you've got almost all the people wanting to do their job one way or another uh it, it can be a dynamic thing be difficult and it's you know it's a bicameral system, so you got to, you know, even if you solve the, the problem in the House, you got the whole set of same stuff in the Senate, and it's, uh, you know, it's slow. So it produces problems more slowly, and it fixes problems more slowly. But this is, uh, this is Federalist 51. This is ambition, counteracting ambition. And you go to D.C., like, oh, my goodness, we got a whole bunch of ambition, counteracting <laughs> ambition. It prevents, That's a good uh, way to put it. Uh, prevents us from getting, getting things done. Yeah, well... Uh, we appreciate you joining us today. It's great insight, and uh, as always, Professor, it's uh, been a pleasure, sir. Thanks. Good to see you. Take care. You got it. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Save my life, I'm going down for the 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. With you in the Element Well studio. Once again, next week it's the 11th annual Palmer Home for Children Radio Fawn. That'll be Thursday, July the 13th. We'll be airing the 11th annual Palmer Home for Children Radio Thon. Here on Super Talk Mississippi, every year there are children across Mississippi that need a loving home. And many times these children are caught in unimaginable circumstances. That's why we need your help. You'll learn how Palmer Home for Children serves vulnerable children. It's a faith-based organization that doesn't take government money. So we definitely need your help. We want you to listen in and join us for the 11th annual Palmer Home for Children Radiothon happening on Super Talk Mississippi, July 13th. We'll be up there. I know the Sports Talk fellows will be there. I think uh, Rebecca may be going there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a radio fine for sure, looking to raise a whole bunch of money. The Dow now down 452 is where it is. The governor of North Carolina, he vetoed a bipartisan bill that would have protected women's sports, it would have prohibited biological males from competing in a female sports competition. They would have to play in the male sports teams, on the male sports teams. Boo-hoo! Fairness in Women's Sports Act passed with bipartisan supermajorities. This would have applied, by the way, to middle schools, high schools, and university environments. But the governor said, quote, we don't need politicians inflaming their political culture wars by making broad, uninformed decisions about an extremely small number of vulnerable children that are already handled by a robust system that relies on parents, schools, and sports organizations. That's a bunch of nothing right there, is it not? That's just something. Let me see if I can make a really long, convoluted sentence with a bunch of words in it. We see, this ignores the rights of the people who were affected negatively by this. That's what they failed to, to consider. They're only considering the small number who have this problem. I think it's a mental problem. And ding, 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 ding. Right. And most reasonable scientists are coming down on that side of this issue as well, that what they need is some counseling and uh, some treatment for the old noggin rather than the various gender physical treatments, hormones and puberty blockers and surgery, etc. 
to change one's sex, one's biological sex. And then in some cases, they don't even do that, right? They just say, no, no, I'm a male. I, I want to, uh, I'm a female, pardon me. I want to compete on the girls' volleyball team. And the next thing you know, they spike a ball. Everybody's, I think, by now seen that and causes a female player on the other team to incur a concussion. The ball being pounded by a strong male right onto their head. Unbelievable. So this governor has vetoed this legislation. Sick. Also saw where Ben from Madison, I know, pointed this out. School choice sweeping the nation. Pennsylvania, looks like, was next in line, and now the governor's backed off. Doesn't support it. You've shaken your head. You've seen that as right as well, right? Yeah, exercising, I believe, a line item veto. Okay. I mean, that's just within 24 hours, I yeah. believe. This thing has been, it's off the table. But when are the Democrats going to realize that? I, no, let me rephrase that. When are people who vote for Democrats going to realize they don't really look out for their best interest? The path to prosperity, to a productive, happy life, is to gain some skills. And you do that through education. You are then marketable. It's like the professor said, we really want these people to get out of here. I respect him for saying that. You heard him, Ryan. We want these people to go out and produce something. Paraphrasing a bit, but that's what he said. We don't want them to be out there hung with these student loans to get through, say, a professional school, such as law school, which is expensive and requires a lot of effort and time and delays entering the workforce to produce income. Well, we don't want them out there saddled with this debt and unable to land a job where they could pay for their debt and take care of themselves and their family. Now, you, I want you to share what you were telling me about this income-based repayment Oh, yeah. feature of student loans. It's not quite what people think. It's not like, okay, we looked at your tax return, for example. We see what your adjusted gross income is. Therefore, your payment towards your student loan is X, calculated as X. It's not, it doesn't work that way. Tell them. No, you're either going to get an email or a letter with a phone number to call, or you're just going to get a phone call. And the person on the other end of the line is going to <laughs> go through a series of questions to figure out what your money situation looks like. So they're going to ask you how much you take home on your paycheck every every month or every couple weeks. They're going to ask you how much your rent or your mortgage is. They're going to ask you how much you spend on your food. They're going to ask you what your utility bills run you. They're going to ask you if you have any other things you have to pay a monthly bill for, like a car note or something like that. And then they'll ask you, okay, how much disposable income do you have after you've paid all your debts? They don't check any of this. In fact, when I got the phone call and I put out a number for how much I spend on food, the lady on the other end goes, is that all? <laughs> so basically, you can fudge your way to not having to pay even though you really don't even you don't qualify for income repayment. Unbelievable. That's just Because they're not checking any of it. They're just taking your word for it over the phone. Man. Well, it's, um, 
it, it says it's based on, uh, let's see, income-driven repayment plans designed to make your student loan debt more manageable. It's based on your income and family size. But that income, that's, that's the, the nuance of the word income. It's your, it's your income after these various expenses that they include in the calculation. And that's, that's what's missing as, as part of, of that discussion. But you're right, it, they don't verify, they don't go through the trouble to... And, and it's so, that, some of that's so subjective, honestly. Yeah, it would be difficult to really check and to say, oh no, well, that's too much, for example. Here's how much I spend on food. No, that's too much. We can't give you that much in the calculation. So, yeah, it's called discretionary income. And typically the payment is calculated as a percentage of your discretionary income. I think it's 10%, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but so they're, they're playing with this. They're monkeying with this thing. Because they're sore at the Supreme Court ruling, and they, in effect, are going to accomplish the same goal, just doing it, I guess, in a way that, that would survive a challenge at the Supreme Court. It's not just an elimination of the principle with the stroke of a pen, but rather it's modification of the terms of the loan, which is... Uh, uh, legal in that it was authorized by Congress. Part of the program in, included empowering the Department of Education to modify the loan terms. And so that's what they intend to do, which I think is uh, shameful, honestly, because the Supreme Court has spoken, and gosh, I, I guess the Professor was right when he starts talking about workarounds and circumventing. Yeah, that's how we roll, man. It's it's a shame. I do like his statement about there's a whole lot of ambitious people. Ain't that the truth? And I think that kind of dovetails into something we've talked about here on the show, which is you want to know why we're 32 trillion in debts? Because we got. 100 people in the Senate and 435 in the House who were told by their constituents, you go up there and bring home the bacon now, but you got to balance the budget and be fiscally conservative. But you make sure I get my part. And then you wake up, it's $32 trillion <laughs> later, because that's what they did. And then they run on that. Look at all this money I brought home to you. There wasn't anything noble about that. You just ran the debt up. That's all you did. You just printed money out of thin air. Nothing creative or productive about that. We're stepping aside in the Element Well studio with the cars bumping us out. Coming right back. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. <laughs>
Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We're in the Element Well Studios. What about Guns N' Roses? We got something coming up there? What do you know? Oh, yeah. Legendary rock group Guns N' Roses are coming to the coast. Axel Slash and the crew will be at the Mississippi Coast Coliseum in Biloxi on September 20th. And Super Talk Mississippi is giving you a chance to be there. Not only could you win tickets to Guns N' Roses, but you'll also get the VIP treatment with a night stay at the luxurious Beau Rivage and a limo ride to the concert. For your chance to win, just enter your name at one of our registration boxes located throughout the state. Go to supertalk.fm forward slash GNR to find a registration box near you, and you must be 21 or older to enter. Hmm. There you go. Guns and Roses. Ought to be fun. Let's see. Louie from the 662 on the C Spire text line sent us a tweet. Laverne Spicer. Not sure who that is exactly, but apparently Miss Spicer, R&B singer. Oh, Laverne Spicer tweeted R&B singer Jill Scott. Yeah. Performed a woke, in all caps, rendition of the national anthem where she changed the lyrics to speak about how oppressed black people are. I'm not surprised, honestly. Uh, that's just the way we, we roll these days. You got Ben and Jerry's. You know who those guys are. Well, They're... Jill Scott's an avowed racist. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Kind of like the race lady over there in MSNBC, huh? She is, too. You saw this about Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream producer. They uh, they called on, on July 4th. They called on the United States to, quote, commit to returning stolen indigenous land to the original owners. The United States was founded on stolen indigenous land the 4th of July, this 4th of July. Let's commit to returning it. In the caption, they also had... Uh, it's high time we recognize that the U.S. exists on stolen indigenous land and commit to returning it. So they had that on an ad, a video ad. Except there's just one slight problem with their virtue signaling. What's that? Uh, ben and Jerry's HQ is built on Abenaki tribal land. <laughs> Have they handed over the deed yet? Don't think so. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they were also calling attention to Mount Rushmore. Isn't that right? I guess they want us to tear that down and give that up as well. And they've lost some some value. And there's a big boycott, just like the old Bud Light debacle, Target, all that. I guess they don't learn. They don't care. Now, in honest, to be honest, Ben and Jerry's has been doing this crap forever. This isn't anything new for them. Like it is for Bud Light, for example. Sign of the times. Ben and Jerry's, I mean, those guys are left-wing loons. And they've always been controversial in this respect. So they got just bombarded with negative responses on social media. Some people called it their Bud Light moment. You've been Bud Lighted. (laughs) Uh, Can't they just shut up and sell ice cream? 
That's what I don't get. Why, why do they got to do this? There's some, there's some sort of crazy sense of gratification and pleasure they get out of this virtue signaling garbage. It's got to be. I, I can't think. Because they got to know this isn't in their best business interest. They've lost a bunch of value. Uh, and there's also their sales are already starting to plummet somewhat, not to the extent of Bud Light. I'm not sure Bud Light ever recovers. I don't think they're ever going to apologize, which would be the first step, and I think it's too little too late, as they say at this point. Had they done it rather uh, close in time to the uh, Dylan Mulvaney transgender promotion, Shortly after that, when they got so much backlash, maybe that would have turned it around and folks would have said, okay, well, they, they realized pretty quickly they boo-booed. But they're not thinking about doing that, to my knowledge. And if they did, I just don't think it would have the same impact as it would have, again, had they done it within a short period of time after this thing just... Uh, Rained hell on the beer world. Wow. They've been, uh, has been in Jerry's, they've been at the center of lots of these social media storms, if you will, for quite some time. Uh, and they're, and they're, I will say this, they probably align with many conservatives in that they are outspoken critics of U.S. military aid to Ukraine, saying that the U.S. should use its power to negotiate an end to the war instead of supplying weapons. Hmm. But they do strongly support the LGBTQ community, the Black Lives Matter movement, among other rather polarizing <coughs> political issues. I just say again, can't you just make ice cream? It's, that'd be fine with me. Just shut up. Stay out of politics. Make ice cream. Make beer. Bud Light. That's all people want. I think more than anything, people are just sick of having politics mixed into, you know, everything they consume, especially stuff like ice cream and beer that's I'm kind trying of an to indulgence. What country it was. It was either Australia or New Zealand that had a controversy. It's been close to ten years ago now, maybe not quite that long where it was involving same-sex marriages, and Ben and & Jerry's came out and said, we will not be serving two scoops of the same ice cream <laughs> in protest. <laughs> this is how deeply unserious these idiots are. Oh, my gosh. So I, th I think, let's see, Ben & Jerry's, I believe, is owned by Unilever. And yep. Is that right? Yeah, and their value has, has declined $2.5 billion since the 4th in two days. Man, so when are they going to wake up and realize that's just really a bad strategy? And it's really bad, again, when you do it in such an overt way. I mean, okay, you support LGBTQ. It, it, so I say, uh, as I have so many times, to me it's more about excluding. Don't exclude them. You don't have to do something special to pander, to placate, to accommodate. Just don't exclude. Hey, you're LGBTQ, you want to buy our beer and ice cream? 
Thank you very much. See you. That's it. Go enjoy it. But no, you have to make some big deal out of it with all the tweets and the commercials and the hiring a transgender spokesperson and all that sort of stuff. It's not necessary. If, you're, if your goal is to just make sure that you cover that small part of the market that you at least appeal, promote to them, okay, fine. You don't have to do it like that. Just don't exclude them. It's on them, honestly. It, or is that community basically saying, we're not buying from you unless you hired some transgender freak to promote your product, like Dylan Mulvaney. We're not going to buy your beer. Okay, well, you just don't have that part of the market. Because the cost of that is, well, you accommodated them, and maybe you gained a small, infinitesimal number of consumers, but you just alienated the vast majority of your consumers. And the numbers don't lie about that. Sadly, now we're seeing bottlers and distributors of the product have to lay people off that are caught up in the middle of this and had nothing to do with it. Where's that hard-working American refrain we always hear? Hard-working families. That, my, my bad. Hard-working families. We're out to protect the hard-working families. You hear it all the time. And it's used on both sides of the aisle, honestly. It's long in the tooth, in my view. Can't you just say people, citizens, Americans? Why has it always got to be hard-working families? Man, because you know what? A lot of the policies, they benefit people that don't work hard, especially families. That's why we've got this freaking inflation we have that Joe Biden won't acknowledge. Man, oh man. I can't boycott a product I never liked. Does it really have any effect? Okay, well, that's fine. That's the market. But boycotting... It's just sorry to me that we've gotten to that point where, okay, I'm not buying that because they support this. I'm not buying that. I mean, you're running out. <laughs> but if these companies would just refrain from being political activists and just make good products and services that benefit society and create value for the economy, we'd all be fine, honestly. Don't mix the two. That's the message. We're coming right back. We've got... Uh, who we got coming on? Mark Anderson at 12.05 after the next segment. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back. On Super Talk Mississippi. Jimi Hendrix. So the other big news uh, from a legal decision perspective is uh, from it's Missouri, I believe, right? That the Biden administration was a little too cozy 
with social media. And honestly, that's pretty scary what was revealed as part of that case. So this is a federal court, it's not Supreme Court. I believe it was Missouri. That, Missouri versus Biden. Yeah, that's right. So, and but the court was Louisiana, right? The federal court, I think. The circuit, if I got that right. It's a. It hasn't made it to the Supreme Court. It's down at the federal court level, one of the district courts. And bottom line was that the government was essentially threatening when you look into the email communication between the government and these social media platforms, directing them on what content to allow, what not to allow, primarily during the COVID era, when there was lots of posting and, and uh, speaking on the platforms about treatments, about vaccines, about lockdowns and masks and the whole gambit. And the government didn't like that. And so they were essentially compelling when you look at the communication there. And the social media platforms, in some cases, were cooperative in that effort to restrict the content and to dictate the content on the platform. And so the the court I don't have the quote in front of me, but the judge said that this will go down as the most massive breach of the First Amendment in our history. Something to that effect. Um, but it, it's scary when you, when you look into it. I'll see if I can get the exact quote. But it's a scary situation. I'm glad that the court got that right. I think. But when you get a judge that goes, yeah, massive attack on sp- free speech and interference with private enterprise is what uh, was stated. So the judge is um, has come down with an injunction that essentially now dramatically limits the interaction between the administration and social media companies. I think that's right. This was originally filed by the former Attorney General of Missouri, Eric Schmidt. So now they're limiting through an injunction. This thing's going to the Supreme Court. you got to believe it is. But I think they got it right. And it's, uh, yeah, the ruling by Judge Terry Daughter uh, Doughty of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Louisiana granted a temporary injunction. And essentially it just bans these federal agencies, which includes Department of Health, Human Services, FBI, etc., from contacting social media companies, quote, for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in a manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. Now, this is a Trump-appointed judge, for what that's worth. And uh, I think this is the right 
ruling. I think this is a big win for the First Amendment. And it is interesting coincidence, it occurred on Independence Day. And a big part of our predecessors seeking their independence from the king, in fact, was to secure the right to free speech. That's why it's number one in the Bill of Rights. There's a reason for that. They know that's integral to a free, thriving, prosperous society. And the government can't indirectly impose its will on the First Amendment if it can't do it directly. That's the other part of this. Like, okay. trying to trying to do that end around, you, you can't do that with the First Amendment. Okay. The government can't sidestep the First Amendment to suppress your constitutionally protected speech because it can't do it directly. Makes sense. Well, they got a big old slap down here, and, you know, everybody knew it was going on. And they just kind of brushed it aside, didn't pay much attention to it. And of course, Corinne Jean-Pierre, she's all upset when she was asked about it, calling it a big loss and all that sort of stuff. We're stepping aside for the news. It's Fox News, Super Talk News. When we return, Mark Henderson, founder of Lazy Magnolia Brewing, now the chief technology officer at Ocean Arrow, joins us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Thanks so much for joining us on this Friday Eve. Our guest now is Mark Henderson, the Chief Technology Officer of Ocean Arrow, also the founder of uh, Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company. And he writes columns for Super Talk Mississippi News called Brewing Your Own Business. Welcome to the program, Mark. Good to talk to you again. Always a pleasure, Gerard. Always a pleasure. Yes, sir. So, uh, all right. So, tell us about uh, what happened there with Lazy Magnolia. You sold the company, right? And now you're CTO at Ocean Arrow. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, people who know me know that I've, I've actually been entrepreneurial in a million good ways along along the way. So, Leslie and I started Lazy Magnolia many years ago. Uh, in between, kind of after that, I actually started an engineering firm called uh, Log Linear Group. And we designed radar systems and communications equipment for some very interesting people. And then, um, um, you know, we've, we've been able to live the American dream, which is that we built uh, something that somebody wanted worse than we did, right? <laughs> I mean, that's one way of talking about it, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like to believe that all businesses are actually, I mean, the, the purpose of building a business is to sell it, right? I mean, you want to build something that has intrinsic value that far exceeds anything that, that you would have just, you know, had. Yep. And, you know, they should be assets that live on forever. And, 
Uh, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, uh, uh, people, some people don't know this, but uh, both my parents were actually kind of involved in the beer business, and they passed about a year ago, um, and that was, uh, was a little challenging for me on some personal levels, and we made the decision that maybe it was time for us to, to let someone else, you know, take Lazy Magnolia and, and move it to the next step. And the new owners have done exactly that. They've invested a lot in the people and the routines and really moving it to the next level. So we're yeah. excited for what that's going to be. Yeah, got you. Well, uh, so you, you recently wrote a column, another column, a, a Brewing Your Own Business column. Is this how we style it? At Super Top Mississippi News, and and you've shared your story, uh, somewhat, and uh, these are some details in your history, Mark, of which I was unaware. And you entitled this particular column "BYOB: Are You Willing to Lose It All?" That's something that we, as risk-taking entrepreneurs, know a little bit about. We we understand that. We accept that. But you know, I'll just I'll leave you with this before you talk about this. I get put out by people who uh, sort of categorize and characterize we entrepreneurs once we have, as you say, we've built something of value that somebody wants more than you do, and you cash out. Call they call them cash out entrepreneurs, and you do that, and and by doing so. Uh, you achieve some degree of wealth. Uh, you know, and that's that's all, of course, very relevant, as you well know. That's right. But I'm, but people have a tendency to look at you and think, uh, not everybody, I'm generalizing here, mainly from the left uh, in this country, but they, they look at you and think, well, you, that was just handed to you, or you exploited your your workers, or you know you you need to redistribute some of that, and really have no idea what happened behind the scenes to get to that point. No, and, and unless you've you've made payroll, um, I don't I don't think you deserve an opinion on it. To be completely honest, right? I agree. For those of us that survive every Thursday, yeah, and have figured out how to you know feed the families that that we support. I mean, Liz and I have always treated you know our employees like family, and we made sure there were many many months that they ate and we didn't. Yep. And uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that you take an event like COVID. This, you know, this kind of existential threat to any and all businesses. And, you know, there, Leslie and I are, the government has shut us down, right? By, by royal decree. Yeah. Um, we're no longer allowed to operate a business. And, you know, I went home that afternoon and sat on my back porch and was like, holy cow, what do I do now? I just had somebody take everything I have ever had. And at that point, Leslie and I had basically 100% of our life savings tied up in a single, you know, asset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- th- you wake up and you look at that and you're like, you know, that's a lot of risk. And, you know, we, we do. As entrepreneurs, right, we, we put it all on the line. We get vilified to some extent, you know, if we are successful, you know, whether they call us sellouts or cash out yeah, or I, you know, whatever I experience it might be. that. I experience that. Yeah. And, um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, the the business that is lazy magnolia right we we started it we're we're those kinds of people right that, that crank one of these things up right that that take an idea from nothing and turn it into something 
but you know, as the business grows, right, it needs different kinds of leadership. And you know, you can look at it and go, all right, I either have to become that kind of leadership, which may be something that I am good at or not. Or I can go, hey, look, you know, there are other people who are good at growing something that now exists, right? The uh, brands that, you know, have been built and exist and, you know, people can take those and take them to the next level. And it's interesting as I've, you know, dealt with a lot of people over the years, you know, it's interesting is that you've got, you know, what we call angel investors and then you've got, you know, venture capital investors and, and then you've got like big VC kind of, and each of the people in that chain, right? They go, Hey, look, man, we, we don't deal with anything over $5 million. Of right. right. And, and this group goes, Oh, we don't touch it until it's $10 million. Right. And then this group goes, we, we work from 50 and above. <laughs> And you know, people specialize in growing, you know, very specific, you know, types of businesses along the way. Yeah. But then, uh, at the same time, you know, Liz and I were also very conscious and said, "Hey, look, you know, we're we're going to make sure that we do it the right way." And you know, looked at. Um, we actually interviewed lots of people that were interested in acquiring, you know, the the business, and we told many of them, uh, "No, this is not right for you, and it's not right for hmm. the brand, and it's not right for the company." Hmm. And you know, we found partners that we thought would actually, you know, be able to take the business, and do something with it, but also be true to the spirit of what we were trying to build from the very beginning. Interesting. So, what are you doing now? Tell us about your new gig. Yeah. So, um, um, chief technology officer. So, you know, leaning back a little bit more on my engineering roots, yeah. uh, Ocean Arrow builds uh, the world's first autonomous uh, undersea and surface vehicle. So these are, uh, if you will, boat, submarine, drones uh, that can go out and collect data, you know, for scientific purposes, do, you know, oil spill uh, investigations, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. All of, you know, and really leveraging up the, the future, which is that, you know, we, we continue to move people out of dangerous jobs and, you know, take that next step of letting the robots do, you know, the hard work. And so uh, uh, leveraging 25 years of experience in engineering, um, they they pulled me in as CTO, um, and I get to maintain the entrepreneurial aspects hmm. of what I've done. I got to buy into the company and, you know, be part of it on the equity side as well. And so it's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, the company actually moved from San Diego. And is now uh, headquartered in Gulfport, Mississippi. Oh, actually, that's great! Port of Gulfport. That's great. So, part of the blue economy down here, and the uh, you know blue initiatives that yep. uh, you know people like Southern Mississippi have been kicking off, and those those kinds of things. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, are you in production? Are you are you selling now? We are. Okay. Yeah, we're actually today we're building hull number thirty-seven, um, which you know doesn't sound like a big number. Uh, but they're rather expensive devices, right? Uh, we've got them currently. Uh, got got maps on the board, pretty much all across the planet. Yeah. Been uh, uh, so it, it's it's exciting for sure, um, and it's uh, you know completely solar powered, um, which which is uh, on one side green, but more importantly means that you know it it can be deployed uh, out effectively forever, right? You don't have to refuel it and things of that nature. And so, you know, that's really the, the use case there is, is being able to leave these things out for long periods of time to collect data and be eyes and ears in the ocean for, you know, all the things that are important. Really cool. So I assume then that you uh, 
you were able to roll some of your proceeds from the sale of uh, Lazy Magnolia into your equity position there? We've got about a minute left. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that, you know, that's, that's the great American dream, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got to diversify my portfolio a little bit, you know, be true to the spirit of what Lazy Magnolia was, and then, you know, uh, make sure that my children would, would be allowed to go to college. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, roll it into the next exciting opportunity, for sure. Mark, appreciate you joining us, and thank you for your entrepreneurial spirit, your willingness to take risk, to create value and jobs uh, for the economy of the state of Mississippi. Uh, much respect to you, sir, in that regard. Thanks for joining us, and, and again, enjoy reading your columns as well on Super Talk Mississippi News. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Mark Anderson, CTO of Ocean Arrow. He was the founder of Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company in Mississippi. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. The markets have paired their losses a bit. The Dow down 382 off the low of the session of a little over 500 points. And the crawler on the screen now on the business channel, Unilever stock loses $2.5 billion. That's the parent company of Ben & Jerry's after they just had to go out there and do it. On July 4th. It's more evidence, is it not, Rhino? Liberals hate fun. They just do. They hate it. You can't have fun. You can't have your gas stove, your fossil fuels muscle car. You can't have it. Air conditioning. They just hate fun. Unless you're a naked dude at a pride parade. Oh, geez. They consider that fun. I see. Why do they got to tell the whole world about their sexual preference? and then hang their package out while they're doing it. Nobody cares. Because it makes up the majority, if not all, of their personality. I, You know, I think you're right about that in that analysis. I, it's, there's a difference between, as you said, having a hobby and just being consumed, obsessed, and it being the whole of your personality. There's a clear difference in that. Like, I thoroughly enjoy reading the Japanese manga One Piece. That doesn't mean that I have my entire car painted like a pirate ship, like I go around and put a scar on my face or wear a straw hat wherever I go. It's a hobby. Oh, gosh. Rhett and Ridgeland on the C Spire text line says, Some of my very good friends are the individuals who started up Lucky Town Brewery. My wife even had a beer named after her. Before I moved back to Mississippi, I remember funding their Kickstarter. That's pretty cool. By the way, uh, Mark's most recent article published a couple weeks ago uh, on our site is really good. He talks about how he started this brewery, and nine months later, Katrina comes through and literally wiped it out uh, because they were brewing kind of in the backyard. It's where they started at the house. And um, he discusses getting possible relief from the SBA as a result of that and the challenges associated with that. So I, I do feel like, however, that to, to some extent, and 
It's This is not a woe is me statement whatsoever. But the left in this country do not respect entrepreneurship. They do not respect risk-taking. They, uh, they always feel like anyone who achieved any sort of wealth through their entrepreneurial exploits and their efforts there always was done nefariously. Not necessarily illegal, but, oh, well, you just you did that off the backs of your workers. You didn't treat them right. You took it off of yourself. And you heard what Mark said, and his, his sentiment and his, um, his approach to being an entrepreneur, a business owner, a, a manager of people, and that you've got to take care of your people, because the market will punish you if you don't. That's what the left doesn't get. And that's especially true in a tight labor market. You don't treat people right, they're gone. And they got plenty of offers waiting for them. So it's self-governing in that respect. It doesn't need the central planning of government in Washington or even at the state and local level to intervene and run these companies and dictate to them how they're going to run their company. The market will do that for you. And they just don't trust the market. They basically don't think people are smart enough to make those kinds of decisions. And they just believe that Everybody that starts a business, a business venture, just there's just always something malicious driving it, something nefarious. You're going to exploit workers, vendors, and the environment, and everybody involved. You're cheating on your taxes. I mean, that's just the way they see everybody that's involved in in business formation, and business expansion, it's just simply untrue. It's just not, not true. Are there some bad actors? Of course there are. But I tell you, in my experience, they all get punished by the market. Somehow, some way, it catches up with them, and it ruins them. And those who do the right thing by their employees, by their customers, by third-party uh, vendors, etc., uh, and and everybody else they're involved with, all stakeholders, all relationships that they forge. If they if they don't do it right, with integrity, with character, with fairness, they'll get plowed over. They just will. And the more competitive the business is, the more that is a likelihood. And they just don't accept that. So I. I will admit, I bristle a little bit when I hear the president say it's time to reward work, not wealth, insinuating that everyone who achieved wealth didn't work. And of course, what he's saying is, I feel like he's saying that directly to, to entrepreneurs. You know, you business folks out there that created these businesses, and maybe you cashed out like Mark did, like I did, and you, you were able to receive a payday from that. Well, you didn't work to get there. Huh? What do you mean? They just have no idea. And that however you achieve that, again, was done by abusing people. we got to step in and make sure you don't abuse them. You know, your, your 
engage in racism and your hiring practices, therefore you got to have these sprawling DEI departments and adhere to all these goofy government regulations. And we got to send the IRS after you because you're not paying your taxes, of course. And we got to dictate to you the wages because you don't treat people fairly in your compensation practices. It's, uh, yeah, that infuriates me, honestly. You just have no idea. And Mark was very clear, was he not, that you don't have a right to be critical of anybody who makes payroll unless you've made one yourself. There's the liberal left loves trying to dictate how you do anything and everything. And if you don't fall in line with their nonsense 100%, you might as well not exist. And they will do everything in their power to make that happen. I mean, perfect case in point. Here's a guy named Stuart Parker. He's the president of a socialist climate activist think tank. And he put out on the 5th on Twitter, quote, In my 36 years as a climate activist, no conservative who has disagreed with me on climate has ever tried to destroy my career, my home, my relationship, my friendships, my social media accounts, my radio shows, my podcasts, or my recreational activities. People working in the fossil fuel industry who feel my efforts are destroying their employment prospects. People who think climate change is a hoax, a fraud I'm helping to perpetrate. People who falsely believe I receive money from shadowy European interests. None of these people have felt entitled to go after my ability to earn a living or have a romantic partner. (laughs) But in my three years of opposing gender wang, Dozens, likely hundreds of progressives, many of whom I considered comrades or friends, have felt it totally appropriate to engage in unapologetic, concerted public efforts to destroy these things. They've even come after my fortnightly tabletop room quest games to try to stop those. In a social partition of contemporary North America, I would rather be in a conservative society, even if it were significantly more on fire, because I wouldn't feel unsafe disagreeing with my neighbors. Oh my gosh. That is so crazy. Hi, um... uh, Yeah, just another person who's clueless. I agree with Mark to a great extent. You don't have the right to be critical of people who make payrolls unless you made one yourself. I mean, of course, you can do it, but it's a it's a figure of speech, of course, an opinion of Marx. He's not calling for changes in the Constitution or the First Amendment along those lines. You want to be critical, but it's 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 inappropriate. Just like as I've said, I think it's inappropriate for members of Congress to to refer to companies by name and denounce companies by name in their official capacity unless they're breaking the law. You don't like something they do, keep it to your damn self. That's just not that's not appropriate for government. I just don't believe that it is on either side for any reason whatsoever. I just I really you know even I have an issue with DeSantis in that respect. I mean, you passed your law, you got it to effect Companies didn't like it, and they lash out at you. Just let them do it. Just move on. Move on to the next deal. You got what you wanted. It's, it's kind of like the, 
this barrage of LGBTQ parades, you got what you wanted. Man, you get more accommodations, more catering than any other demographic in the country. We go out of our way to make sure you got it. Now just go be yourself and quit hanging yourself out in public in front of kids and shoving our in our face all the time. We're coming right back with half an hour left on middays. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Well, the president is in uh, South Carolina touting his economic policies, his plan known as Bidenomics. Historic, he says. <laughs> okay, so on the ceasefire text line. There was a couple of things I wanted to get here down that Ben had to say that I thought was pretty good. He says, it's uh, caught the end of Mr. Gallo's interview with McDaniel. A few things, that was this morning, by the way, Chris McDaniel on with Paul Gallo. A few things that really differentiate the two candidates for lieutenant governor seem to be school choice, ballot initiative, and income tax elimination. In my opinion, those three things would expand freedom and increase prosperity in our state. It's a shame the lieutenant governor doesn't want a debate. I think it could really help drive up the voter turnout. I agree with you, Ben. I'd like to see him debate as well. As I've stated before, we have, uh, I personally, I, sh- I shouldn't say we, because I don't want to speak on behalf of Super Talk or the network, but I personally have uh, spoken to the lieutenant governor and, and Chris McDaniel about a debate where I would serve as the moderator. And uh, the lieutenant governor has declined that offer. Now, I didn't offer that would uh, as it would occur here at Supertalk. I really haven't talked to management here about that. I, I mean, we, we could figure that out, let's put it that way. We could come up with a place and a time and all the other resources we need to conduct a debate. I feel like there would be plenty of takers on that. But unfortunately, the lieutenant governor... Um, has not agreed to do so. I've, I've asked him twice about that and have not gotten um, his uh, uh, affirmation of that, his agreement to do so. Uh, Chris McDaniel, of course, is an incumbent. You would expect that. Uh, um, but as a challenger, you would expect they would be more than happy to engage in a debate, and Chris McDaniel is willing to do that. I do believe if the Hoseman camp is listening. I do believe that I could 
conduct a debate as a moderator in a fair, non-partisan way, if you will, not showing any favoritism to one to one candidate over the other, but just asking, I think, questions that Mississippians want to hear responses to from these candidates. And to your point, Ben, I think the ballot initiative, school choice, and income tax elimination are three high-profile issues that voters would like to know where the candidates stand. And I think we would get to the bottom of that. Something else that the candidates, uh, in my view, need to discuss is PERS. We've certainly beat that up on the program quite a bit, but it's not going away. It's going to continue to be something that requires action in order to ensure the program is stable for the next generation and future generations of uh, retirees who are entitled to those benefits, who have paid into it, who are expecting it. And um, so we, uh, we'll we see. But at this point, I would say it's unlikely that such a debate would occur with a little over a month remaining in the um, before we have the election itself. Let's see. From Paul's interview with McDaniel this morning, I have changed my support from Hoseman to McDaniel, says Darren in Jackson. Can you summarize McDaniel's role in the Cochrane News nursing home photos or clarify his role? Well, we, we really don't have any evidence at this point, James, that um, there is any direct involvement by Senator McDaniel. There, no, it was his supporters. Um, it was a supporter, and not, I think it's natural to always connect and link a candidate to things that um, supporters do that make the news that are that are, are just wrong, inappropriate. This was certainly an example, and I think the senator got connected to do that just by virtue of the fact that it was a supporter. And it was, of course, a, a photo that was taken of the, the former senator's uh, wife at the time, who was bedridden, um, relegated to the care in a nursing home. Somehow got through the what little security honestly there is in those facilities, and and to snap that photo, and I I think one has to believe the purpose of that was to try to try to drum up disrespect, maybe dishonor, dislike for the sitting senator, the incumbent. I think that was the purpose, and of course that got connected to the the uh, McDaniel camp. In the campaign, he, of course, the challenger to Senator Thad Cochran. And Which I said at the time, and I still think it's true, at least part of what sunk McDaniel's campaign in 2014 was his seeming inability to get out in front of that, to, to come out and publicly denounce it in a way that put undecided voters at ease. Yeah, I think he could have handled that a little different, maybe with a little bit more fervor to uh, come out uh, immediately and uh, make a statement to that effect. And, of course, I lost a friend as part of that. 
Um, Mark Mayfield took his life over that incident. Still to this day, don't really know if he had any personal involvement in it or not. I don't know that that's ever been empirically proven. But Mark uh, was in college at the same time. I knew him on campus. We had some classes together. Mark, many people don't know Rhino, was responsible for starting the Tea Party in Mississippi, the Central Mississippi Tea Party chapter, at least. And in 2014, between the time before, I'm sorry, this incident occurred and he took his life, he asked me to speak to the Tea Party. And I spoke, believe it or not, a couple of weeks in advance of the uh, well, the runoff in 14, and it was just prior to that when Mark took his life. Very sad situation. So, but just back to the the issues, um, he says, totally agree on PERS. Voters deserve to know where the candidates stand on that issue, and unfortunately, Ben, it's such a complicated matter that very few candidates even understand it, uh, the complexities of that, and you could say the same about just the mechanics and the underlying finances of Social Security and Medicare in the, at the federal level. Just very few pay much attention to that because it's not something they have to deal with on a daily basis because they keep kicking that can down the road. And um, I, I call attention to PERS because it's, uh, it, it has structural issues it, as well. And, and there are members of the – a few members of the legislature that are keenly aware of this. They're certainly the PERS board and – PERS administration, they're aware of it, uh, but the candidates don't talk about it. It's not a fun thing to talk about, and there's no, there's no positive answers, let's put it that way. You can't come forward and say, here's what we're going to do about PERS, and people will say, yeah, that's great, let's do that. No, there's no such thing. Same thing with Social Security, which is why they won't address it. It's not in your best interest to, as a candidate. So Larry, I asked Larry Myers, who, by the way, said uh, Chris McDaniel killed it on the Gallo show this morning. I said, well, what do you think he'll get done as lieutenant governor, in your opinion, to improve the quality of life in Mississippi? He said, eliminate the income tax and the grocery tax, exclamation point, exclamation point. I said, over how many years? He said, ASAP. Well, I guess that means in year one. So, Larry, what you're saying is, is that we would uh, gut revenue to the state of Mississippi in year one uh, to the tune of about $2.6 billion in a $6.5 billion budget. So we're producing a surplus of about $650 million. That means you got $2 billion of spending you would have to cut in order to adhere to the constitutional requirement to balance the budget. Do you have any thoughts, Larry, on what $2 billion of spending you would cut? Serious question for anybody out there that's looking for the income tax and the grocery sales tax to be eliminated immediately. What would you like to cut that would amount to, sum to, aggregate to, add up to $2 billion of our $6.5 billion budget. We're coming right back with a final segment on Middays.
Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. segment of middays from the Element Well Studios. So it's it's serious question though is you you, um, you could eliminate the income tax and the um, the grocery sales tax all in one fell swoop if you would cut about two billion dollars out of the state's um, spending two billion. I bet even Thomas and Greenwood would have a hard time finding $2 billion. Of course, he would just say eliminate public education, because that would do it. We just could eliminate K-12. That would do it. We could, um, we could exit Medicaid. Okay, We could shut down the prisons, and then we'd have to still do some more cuts to achieve that as well. And then you could you could eliminate some of the other agencies, like you could get rid of the Attorney General. Just don't have that anymore. Department of Treasury. Don't need that. See, math matters. And few people really want to go through the exercise because it's more politically expedient to just say, I'm going to do this and that and the other. And people say, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I'm voting for. And, I, and look, I'm not being critical of Chris McDaniel here, specifically. Uh, or certainly exclusively. I'm talking about everybody that says that. Donald Trump in 2016, you remember this rhino said, if you elect me, I'll ensure we are no longer operating with a deficit at the end of my first term, and if you put me in for a second term, I will have retired all the debt. What happened? He increased the deficit and the debt more than any other president in history. But it was popular to say that on the campaign trail in 2016. So there was a question, what would be the numbers be like if you cut the grocery tax in half? I don't know the actual answer to that. I'm estimating, just kind of eyeballing, that the grocery tax produces, or sales tax on groceries, it's not a grocery tax, but sales tax on groceries if you look at the total revenue from sales tax, which is about 35% of uh, our revenue, I'm estimating that that amounts to about 400, maybe 500 million a year. So you could do that if you assume that the surplus that we're producing this year, for example, continues. If that's structural, if it's systemic, if it's gonna, if it's baked into our, our tax and spend environment, yeah, you could do that, cut it in half. You absolutely could. But completely eliminating the sales tax on groceries and the income tax simultaneously, all at once, in a single year, requires cutting $2 
plus billion dollars of spending. So just looking here at the legislative budget office's uh, financial statements that, that show what's what's called total state support, and it's line item. Shows all the various agencies, objects, recipients of state general fund mon- money. I'm looking at it. So you could get rid of the Attorney General, the Auditor, the Secretary of State, Wildlife, Game and Fish, Corrections, Mental Health, Department of Health and Human Services, CPS, Department of Revenue, Department of Public Safety, uh, Military and Rehab Services, you'd get to about $1.5 billion. Need $500 million more. So all I'm trying to do is just share the math, just inform on the math. I'm all for it. And Thomas says... Thomas said, well, gee, Gerard, I, I thought, uh, what happened to you? I thought you were for um, eliminating the income tax. I was. I was for the very first bill, wholeheartedly. That bill, as you recall, would eliminate the income tax immediately, but it also called for an increase in sales taxes. And there was all sorts of pushback on that from, I mean, just people came out of the woodwork, all the special interests that would be affected by that felt like they'd be affected. And so that died, and the House went back and and tuned that bill, tweaked that bill. And the final one we got that still couldn't get across the finish line, the Senate, would have eliminated the income tax over a 10 to 12 year period of time, provided various triggers and and, uh, goals were met from a revenue perspective in order to claw back the income tax rate some more in a given year. There was a formula for that. And honestly, in my view, it would have never happened. We'd have never hit those goals. It wouldn't have happened in 12 years. It wouldn't have happened in 40 years. It was just a way to get something done to say, hey, look, I voted to eliminate the income tax. But you're not telling us that, yeah, but it's over 12 years and it's got all these gates and requirements in it that really renders it virtually impossible to achieve. We're out of time here today. I'm sorry we are, because we could keep on talking about this. We'll continue the conversation tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.